Well, this morning we are going to be looking at something topical, topical study of the Word of God. And let's begin with prayer. Ask the Lord to help us, help make this meaningful to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. We pray that you would now focus our hearts and minds to hear from your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and humility and understanding on the issue that we're about to discuss. And Lord, I pray that we would understand the practicality of it. I pray that you protect our church and help us to have a philosophy of ministry that is biblical and is remaining true to the end. And Lord, of course, in all this, we desire to see fruit. We desire to have your blessing uh, for the glory of Christ, our Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, any local church in our culture is kind of like a ship, you might imagine, that is sailing on open waters. And God has given us a mission. He has given us a destination. It's not like we're just aimlessly wandering around in the middle of the sea. But there is no land anywhere in sight. And so you might imagine with me here that we can't simply chart our course by any landmarks. And what further complicates us arriving at our God-given destination is the fact that we are surrounded by many other ships. There are many other ships and they're going in every other direction. And so uh, and there are even fleets of ships. Uh, one that I want us to discuss today is the seeker movement. It's what we call the seeker movement or the seeker sensitive movement. And it is like a great fleet of ships all sailing in the same direction. Uh, the question is, should we join this fleet and set a course for where they're bound? Well, it would be helpful to know that God has not left us directionless, but he has given us himself a divine map, a divine compass. And of course, what is the divine map and compass that is to set our course? Yes, the word of God. And uh, of course, we can say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit, he's the one who leads us. Right. But how do we know it's the Holy Spirit and not another spirit? It's using the word that the spirit of God has authored. And so we must use this divine map and compass, the compass of God's word for chartering life's sea. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word gives us guidance. Proverbs 6, 23, the commandment, that is the commandment of the Lord, is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And I think a scripture we're all familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, talks about how God's word is profitable, the holy scriptures, all of it in its entirety is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And this remains true for us today as it was in the time of Christ's apostles. It's not like a couple thousand years has changed anything. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this is still our to be our compass. The word of God is still to be our map. It's what we go to. Not marketing schemes, not the culture, uh, not marketing consultants that especially work with churches and are just going to help us bring in more people and be successful. No, the word of God is still our source and our standard for a philosophy of ministry and for understanding our purpose as a church. Why do we even exist? So this morning we aim to discuss the seeker-sensitive 
debate within evangelicalism, and of course this is just a primer, we're not going to get exhaustive here, and uh, some of you may be familiar with this already, but this is a debate that's namely over the church's responsibility in the culture uh, to be relevant and or to avoid offense in today's culture. On the one side of the debate, there's what we call the seeker movement, the seeker-sensitive movement. So when I talk about the seeker church, I'm talking about this seeker-sensitive church, the seeker-sensitive movement. And for short, this is, this is basically a movement within evangelicalism, meaning these are those that we would at least consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ. They would at least claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But they believe we must gear the church, we must gear our ministries in the church toward the felt needs of the people we're ministering to. Now, there's a difference between what the Bible says actually are our needs and what we feel are our needs. So if we were to ask people, what do you feel you need? What do you want? What do you want to see in a church? We're going to get a different answer probably than what the Bible says their real near condition is, right? But the story of the secret sensitive church, let's be brief here, begins back in the 70s with a, a man named Bill Hybels. Anybody familiar with that name? Bill Hybels? Okay. All right, a couple of you. So Bill Hybels was the founding pastor of Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And as a very young man, he set out to, to really rethink the church. He wanted to discover a new way of doing church. I think he had a um, very sincere burden to see the church grow. But he basically approached it this way. He went into the neighborhoods polling people and, and asking them, what did they want to see in a church? What was it that they felt prevented them from being involved or attending a church? And the answers he typically received were boring services. That's why we don't go. Overly long sermons. Oh, yeah. Uh, irrelevance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, define long, right? Um, but irrelevance uh, in the church. What is the Bible? It doesn't have to anything to do with my life here and now. But, of course, that very moralistic of all excuses, many said, there's hypocrites in the church. Well, of course, Hybels couldn't do anything about that. But he did do many things, as it goes, to rid the church of being either boring or irrelevant. He, he sought to carefully craft the church service to be interesting, to grab people's attention, to be attractive, especially for those who had little use for traditional Christianity. So we're talking about People that, you know, they really don't have an interest in coming, uh, sing, and, and sit down and just hear these expository messages and all that stuff. They're not interested in all the doctrine. And he wanted to craft a service that would be attractive to them. And so to this end, Hybels instituted short services, casual dress, sermons that address the here and now needs that would be felt needs of his audience rather than the distant, eternal issues. That's so abstract, right? So theological. And most churches were centering on that. But uh, he got rid of all the religious symbols, such as the crosses. And he wanted to make seekers, again, that's the buzzword here, people that are seeking God, right? He wants to make church comfortable for them, appealing to them. And so he strips the church of any symbols that might make people feel uncomfortable. And he began to really make use of the drama in church. And also multimedia. Now, at least, I think we can say Bill Hybels is sort of a forefather in this movement, but he is not the last. I think Rick Warren has probably done more to uh, spread the movement. I'm not an expert on that, but he's, he wrote that book. You know, Rick Warren, 
Probably more of you know that name, right? He wrote The Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. And in, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren writes this. He says, It is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. The most likely place to start is with the person's felt needs. I think that a lot of that, you could say, oh, that sounds really nice. You know, I want to reach somebody. I want to be sensitive to what they're wanting. What are they needing? Right? But is that really the key to reaching people? Is that where we start with their felt needs? And so according to the seeker-sensitive movement, at least, the church ministry should be oriented around felt needs, the felt needs of those we're seeking to reach. And they might not state it this way, but the practical outcome of the seeker movement is that they orient their ministries around the wishes of the lost rather than around the word of the Lord. All right? We're going to find that many times the wishes of the lost, the wishes of the culture, doesn't align uh, with the word of our Lord. And we got a problem because we're going to have to choose to be unpopular or to, of course, try to continue attracting the masses. I was reading one blog last night that compared seeker churches to AT&T. And this brother aptly says, modern evangelical churches, the seeker churches, are just like AT&T. They're more interested in attracting new members than they are in keeping old ones. And he says, in case you don't believe me, here's some quotes from leaders in the seeker-sensitive movement, quotes from Rick Warren, who's saying this. Again, I'm just trying to give you an idea of, of what this movement is and its philosophy. Warren states in The Purpose Driven Church, in every membership class we say, if you are coming to Saddleback from another church, you need to understand up front that this church was not designed for you. It is geared toward reaching the unchurched who do not attend anywhere. And Warren goes on to explain that their philosophy of ministry is about bringing people in. That's what they're about. They're about the lost. And so, and he cites Mark 2.17 as uh, evidence of this or support of this, where Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call, uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Couldn't agree more with Jesus on that. The question is, what is that to look like in church ministry? Does that mean the church is all about the wishes of the lost and about drawing people in? What is the church again? That's at the root of all of these questions about philosophy of ministry. In a sermon, Stephen Furtick, who's also a well-known leader of the seeker movement today, uh, Stephen Furtick has said, we preach so that people can come to faith in Christ and we want them to get in a small group and serve so that other people can meet Christ. If you know Jesus, I'm sorry to break it to you, the church is not for you. Church is not for you, according to Stephen Furtick. And he goes on to explain, you know, it's kind of like military mindset. We need, when we come into the church, we need to have a mindset. This, is, this organization isn't about me, it's about reaching the lost. Now I think, again, there is a measure of virtue in the thought that we should be coming here not simply for ourselves, right? There's a greater purpose to our life than just living for ourselves. What about the lost? What about those who don't know Jesus? What about those outside the glass? Furtick cites in support of his position, Luke 19, 10, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so he says the church is not for the saved, it's for the lost. Interesting, interesting. Uh, The article that I'm citing from here concludes, and I, I would agree with this conclusion, that when church leaders only care about attracting new members, it's a recipe for disaster. And there are many reasons for that. 
I should probably mention too, because he's another name out there that's quite popular today, but Andy Stanley is another very well-known leader of this kind of a philosophy of the way we do church, this kind of a movement. And I have some quotes here where he's, he's arguing basically, actually it's one of his books, Deep and Wide, Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend. That's the name of the title, all right? And he, he talks about how when you read the Gospels, it's hard to overlook the fact that Jesus attracted large crowds everywhere he went. Interesting. But in Stanley's mind, that was Jesus' intention. Let's just draw the biggest crowds we can. And so churches should try to be mega churches too. We should try to attract the largest crowds. Well, according to Stanley, he says, it wasn't the content of Jesus' messages that appealed to the masses. I think he's right. Most of the times, what was it? It was the miracles. It was the things Jesus was giving out, the handouts. But here's the question. Was that a good thing? Now understand, it wasn't wrong that Jesus was doing miracles and attracting people to himself, to his ministry, but there was a messianic reason for that. In fact, in the Gospels, we read over and over again that the, the primary purpose of Jesus' miracles was not attracting people. Jesus wasn't trying to please people with bread and circuses like the Roman uh, government. Jesus wasn't trying to create a welfare system. Uh, you'll know that in, if you read John 6, and you read the greater context of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, you will see that Jesus wanted the people to understand there was a bread they needed that was eternal, right? It was to put their faith in him. And ultimately, those people that were only about the bread and circuses, they were only about filling their bellies with another day's food. They left Jesus. They forsook him. Just like a lot of people leave these mega churches, leave the seeker movement. Or rather, just like a lot of people remain in the seeker movement, but aren't interested in seeking Jesus. They are interested in the bread and circuses. So the question is, what, what is the merit of the seeker movement today? Is there anything we can learn from it? Is, uh, is this kind of a philosophy that we want to imbibe as a church here in the 21st century? Well, I want to, I think it's fair to just open it up to any, if there's any merit to this movement. Would you say there's any merit to this movement? I've been talking a while, but what would you say? Yes, Renee. I'd say it would depend on the mindset of the people that are coming. If they truly want to learn about God mm. and what's in the Bible and everything, it's a good thing. But if they're just coming to look for entertainment and music, it's mm. not it. Wow, that's well said. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I think everybody heard what she said here, but that's, that's very much relevant is what are people seeking when they come to our church if they are seeking God and they're seeking his word well that's exciting we should be excited about that we want to encourage that we want to encourage people to seek the Lord but as she said as well if they're just coming to seek the bread and circuses the amusement the uh, you know oh we like the music we like the programs and all that then yeah hey you could gain the whole world lose your own soul that's not a good thing any merit, though, in the, in the movement that we could commend? Is that hand up? No, I was going to say that it's the opposite of merit. It's the opposite. Mm. Um, it's, it's the people that are there are disciples. Mm. And when those people come in, what are they coming in for? Mm. Okay.
you got numbers. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. What fruit is that going to produce? Excellent. So both of you guys, both the comments that have been shared, it's really interesting. You guys are, aren't really uh, tossing the, any bones to this movement because uh, you see some problems, right? Now, I do want to say this because I think it's fair enough. If we met somebody in this movement, again, I'm going to say, assume this person's a genuine believer. There are people in these churches, right, that don't know the Lord. I don't doubt at all that there are pastors, there are church leaders that are in the ministry for the money. But some people in the seeker movement are sincere. And I don't think it's for us to impugn somebody's motives, right? Now, I'm not saying that justifies what they're doing. Do not mishear me. But I'm saying, okay, that's the one thing I do appreciate when I meet somebody, especially like I've worked a lot of different jobs, and I was always very thankful to meet just another evangelical. If it was somebody who was unashamed of their faith, I was very thankful for that, especially if they had a desire to reach the lost for Jesus. So uh, th- that's a commendable thing. I think if we meet a brother or sister who s- has a heart that they, where they sincerely want to reach others for Jesus Christ, I say, hey, praise the Lord. I think that's great. I-, I-, I don't want to put a wet blanket on your desire to win others to Jesus. But there's a right way to do that, and there's a wrong way to do that. And uh, as Renee was hinting at, right, what you win them with is what you keep them with. What, what are we winning people with? What are we, what are we wooing them with in by drawing them out to church, right? So I think one thing, though, we could say is where we find a brother or sister who is sincere and is passionate about reaching the lost for Jesus, that itself is commendable, but that's not a stamp of approval on what the secret movement's doing. No. Another thing I think we could say is that when we come to church, we should be sensitive to people's felt needs. Now, don't misunderstand what I said, Okay. We should be sensitive to, to what people feel. That's all I'm saying. We should be uh, under. We should try to be understanding of people and where they are. That doesn't mean that we orient our ministry around their felt needs. But I would say, especially when people don't know Jesus, they don't know the truth of God the way we do. We should have a heart that's sensitive to them. And I'm just saying, when you come to church, this is what this would look like: that you see somebody over there. It's, it's their first time. Maybe they don't do everything the way you think they should do it. They don't dress the way you think you should or whatever. But I think we should be sensitive to those people. And I think we should try to understand where they're coming from. And that does not mean we change our ministry to appease them and their felt needs. But it means we should have a sensitivity. Yeah, brother. Are you really a church in the first place? Yeah, you. so you're right on. And, brother, we're going to get there, too, in a moment. So I want everybody to remember what Brother Efren saying because discipleship is 
the primary mission of the church as relates to our, our task on earth, right? I mean, we are to glorify God. That's, that's the ultimate purpose. But what does that look like? Discipleship, okay? Discipling other believers to know and love Christ and, and lead others to, to know him and worship him. We are to make worshipers. So we're going to get to that. But I'm just, here I'm even just thinking more preliminary, more basic. When I meet somebody who's of the secret sensitive movement and I... I mean, it's just like their spirit bears witness with my spirit, at least. And I'm like, okay, this is a brother and a sister who loves Jesus. It helps me to at least try to understand them a little bit. I, I would say that one thing that um, some of these churches are reacting to, uh, and I think they're wrong in the reaction, is churches that they have seen. I think Bill Hybels probably picked up on this in his time. I don't know him. I never talked to him, right? But probably reacted a lot to churches he attended or had seen they were very uh, insensitive to the lost, and they had a lot of cultural stumbling blocks. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you come in here, you got to have a, a and you're a woman, you got to have a dress on, or, you know, or somebody's going to take you aside and talk to you. Or, uh, you know, when you come to our church, I don't know, I mean, like, you, you yeah, and long, no long hair. Okay, great, another one. Yeah, the length of your hair, somebody's going to talk to you if you're, if you're a guy, right? You know, it's just... A lot of things like that, uh, those are realities, and I still hear stories from people. This is a reality within a, a movement, a conservative movement called fundamentalism within Christianity. And so um, I think that we could say that the seeker movement has wrongly reacted to other wrongs, right? And so we want to be biblical. Again, our, our solution, our philosophy of ministry shouldn't come from we look at other churches, we see what they did, it didn't work. So therefore, we're going to try this because we think this will work. That's marketing. That's human wisdom. That's trusting the arm of the flesh. We should go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about a philosophy of ministry? What should be our approach? And so here's now what I want us to see. I think I got seven points here probably. I think of seven things from the word of God, seven principles that we could use to help us navigate uh, you know, the course that God has charted for us and not be confused, not be deterred, drawn away by uh, all of these headed in the seeker-sensitive movement. Okay, so here's one of the first foundational theological principles that will help keep our church uh, biblical and have a biblical philosophy ministry, and that is we need to agree with what God has said about the human condition. We need to agree with our God about what he has said concerning the human heart. What is the human condition according to the Bible? Oh, I know. Uh, doesn't Ephraim, were you going to say all, uh, all men seek after God, all men love God? No? <laughs> Ouch. Wait a second, guys. That's not popular. Come on now. Victor, you know a Bible? Don't you have a Bible verse that says all men? Oh, no, you are not helping the case. Okay, what's that say? Yeah, the heart's wicked. It's deceitful above all things. That means people can even think they love God and they actually don't. Now, the interesting thing is that seeker churches will tell you, no, look at it. We have people flocking to Jesus since we opened our doors. People are coming down the aisles and they're making decisions. And we saw a hundred salvation decisions. Praise the Lord. You know, how many salvations decisions did you see this week? Oh, well, that's a great question, right? Wow, it looks like they've got a lot of fruit. People are seeking the Lord. They'll say sinners are really seeking God. We just need to get out of the way so God can draw sinners into his church. But you know what? Here's a, just a little bit of a, 
cold dose of reality for us, the church has always dealt with this. This isn't anything new. Back in the, I believe it was the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas said that what we observe when we see people seeking after God, he said what we observe, at least as a general rule, is we observe people seeking things that only God can give them. Aquinas was saying, the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. There's none that seeks after God. How do we reconcile that with the fact that we see people all over saying, oh, I love God. I seek after God. Is the word of God true? Well, absolutely. Well, what Aquinas was saying is people are interested in the gifts, not the giver. That's very possible. it's, It's common. What would some of these things be that people are seeking for that only God could give them? Throw it out there. Peace. Peace. Protection. Protection. Yes, security. Happiness. Hope. Heaven over hell. Hey, fire insurance. Okay. People want, uh, they want these things. They want assurance. They want eternal life. They want these things that only God can give them. Does that necessarily mean that their heart is seeking after God? Right. Any, any unregenerate sinner can crave the things that God can give, his good gifts. But uh, just read the word of God again. Psalm 14, Psalm 32, on the, the fact that there's none that seeks after God, that it's, our, it's out of our heart, Jesus taught, that, that our evils come. It's not the culture. It's not our environment. Our hearts are sinful and corrupt to the core. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, read that. We're dead in sin. Why are we going to try to uh, orient our ministry around dead people that don't have any desire for God until what? Ephesians 2.4, God makes us alive. That's the difference. That's what ministry should be oriented around, around God and around his word. All right, there's many scriptures we could share, but what, what I think we should say is that we must affirm what the scriptures teach about our sinfully depraved condition and Believing in the gospel, according to the Bible, is not a matter of how attractive we make the gospel for the sinner. It's how attractive God makes it. That really leads me to the second point here. We need to agree with God not only about the human condition, but we need to agree with what God has said about our need for his saving grace. His regenerative grace. You know, what you believe about salvation is huge. It has everything to do with your philosophy of ministry. And uh, Rick Warren again claims, it's my deep conviction, he says, that anybody can be one to Christ if you simply discover the key to his or her heart. Is that true? Well, you know, if that's true, I'll tell you what. A great soul winner is a great psychologist. Somebody who just knows the felt needs of people. That'd be the greatest evangelist ever. Because you would just get into people's heart in a way and, and you could pull on their strings and you can manipulate them to pray the prayer before they even knew what they were doing. Actually, there are churches that work like that. And they teach evangelism seminars like that. Well, you could be a great soul winner. Let me tell you, if you think evangelism is about you bringing other people to Jesus and you're the one that's saving people, that, that, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. That's not real salvation. Real salvation is the work of God. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.10. The mentality you see of the seeker-sensitive churches, if you build it, (laughs) 
Remember Field of Dreams? If you build it, what? They will come. Let's build it. And they will come. And if we do this and if we do that and if the preacher's funny and he's interesting and we shorten down the sermons and all that and we give away a car, you know, raffle or different stuff, people will come and they will actually get saved. And, um, you know, the sad thing is is that we have to remember salvation is of the Lord. It's always been of the Lord. It always will be of the Lord. If the Holy Spirit doesn't move in a sinner's heart, nobody is getting saved. It doesn't matter how good you think your preaching is. We are that dependent upon the Lord, not upon gimmicks and charms and and all this stuff. What does the Bible say? Who gives the increase? God gives the increase. Remember the parable of the sower? Boy, we could have a lot of responses to the word of God, but it's only that seed, the word of God, that takes root in the heart and by the miracle of regeneration begins to grow and bear fruit. That is the work of God. Nothing changes that. So, uh, thank God for the power of the gospel. It is still the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, Romans 1.16. But that doesn't change. The secret movement ought not to deter us from that biblical truth. Now, here's a third principle to help keep us on a biblical course, regardless of what the secret church is doing. We need to keep a biblical idea of growth and success. We need a biblical idea. We need to keep our eyes on the biblical idea of growth and success. Because, you know, ministries can really get sidetracked about measurement. If you have the wrong way of measuring uh, success in ministry, well, you're going to get discouraged or you're going to be encouraged about the wrong thing. We need to know, what does the Bible say about growth and success? Well, the seeker-sensitive church sacrifices, we could say, qualitative growth. I think that's what Brother Ephraim was getting at. Um, they're not so interested in in people in the church growing deeper roots into Jesus Christ and being discipled and built up in the faith and all that being trained, they're interested in what? Quantitative growth. It's not qualitative growth. It's quantitative growth. They want the numbers. Let's just think about that. What's the fruit of quantitative growth, numerical growth in a church? Oh, wow, I didn't have to beat around the bush for that. Really, there's no, no mystery, no surprise. You think it's all about the money? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where there's people, where there's more people, churches know this. There's more money. And I've heard this from other pastors, other men in the ministry, but it's interesting. We're talking about now a generation of pastors that's going into the world, out of the seminaries, and like one of the first questions on the agenda is, What's my salary going to be? You know, uh, th- this is not right. This is not good. I think we should take care of our pastors, but we we got to realize there's something more important than money in ministry. The love of money is the root of all evil, and so here I don't want to impugn the motives of of someone who just they want to see their church grow. Hey, I want I want our church to grow. That doesn't mean it's all about the money, right? We want our church to grow for many reasons. There's nothing wrong with seeing a bigger budget. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's how we know that's a problem. If we're more interested in quantitative growth than we are in qualitative growth, if we're more interested about getting people in the doors of this building so we can do more programs and have bigger budgets and all that, then we are about being faithful in the least of things, faithful with what God has already entrusted to us. What do you mean is already entrusted to us? A few people, a few disciples. Let's be faithful in the least things. What does that look like? It means 
saying growth and success is measured by what God says is growth and success, not by what the world says or the seeker-sensitive movement, not by numbers. I could give you several examples of this, but I'm just thinking of, for one, Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible tells us. He was a prophet, a preacher. But guess how many converts Noah had in his time? <laughs> yeah, zero, really. I mean, if you want to include his family, you say, let's be generous. He had his wife, his uh, three sons, and their wives. That was it. People say that church was all about, or his, his gathering of God's people, right? That was all nepotism. Come on, man. He didn't reach anybody. Are we going to say Noah was a failure? Well, you could say that, but he's in the hall of faith. And uh, I think God would credit him with a lot more success, dare I say, than a lot of pastors and preachers, church leaders, that are very successful, quote-unquote, in the seeker movement. Why? Because success isn't really about what the world thinks. I think Elijah is another great example. He fainted. He asked God to take his life because no one would convert under his ministry. Of course, God tells him, hey, I got a people, I got a remnant that you don't even know about, Elijah. But he was discouraged because he couldn't see any numerical growth under his ministry. John the Baptist lost his head for preaching the truth and he angers this politician because he shot straight this guy, just like Jesus, right? And Jesus said, man, you know what? You want to say something about John the Baptist? You, you, you want to undermine him? You want to say he didn't preach the right thing? He wasn't careful? He should have been more wise with his tongue or whatever? He said, there is not a man born among women that is greater than John the Baptist. Wow. That's coming from Jesus. Not from Christianity Today or, you know, Time Magazine or whatever. He didn't win the new Nobel Peace Prize. That's coming from Jesus. Jesus lost his crowds by preaching the hard truth. John 6, man, we could, we could look at that. He loses the crowds because he's preaching a hard saying. The apostles are all martyred. So, yeah, I'm just saying, we need to go to the Bible. We need to remember, what does the Bible say about how success and growth ought to be measured? And let's not let the world dictate whether or not we are where God wants us to be because of numbers, right? Because of programs, because of budget, and so on. Uh, I want to go through these things relatively briefly, but I have a few more points. Uh, fourthly, we need commitment to biblical truth over cultural acceptance and popularity. So, of course, this coincides with what we just talked about. We need a biblical idea of success and growth, not the cultures, but we also need a commitment to biblical truth over cultural acceptance, being affirmed by uh, our community, our, our non-believing community, that is, and popularity, being popular, being praised. What matters? Uh, if people don't like our church, does that mean we're failing? That's a good question, right? Does that mean we're doing something wrong? Well, I think we should listen to them. I think we should know what they're saying. <laughs> because maybe they, they're saying something, they're like, wow, you know what? That isn't right. The Bible tells us that's not right. But if they say, you're unloving, oh, well, why would you say that? Well, because you're, you're telling me if I don't put my faith in Jesus Christ alone, then I'm going to be damned. I'm not, I'm not going to be saved. I'm going to say, well, yeah, actually, Jesus said you already are damned. He said you are already under the wrath of God. I think Jesus is the most loving person possible. I'm not going to impugn Jesus with being unloving for preaching that kind of a truth. I think if we love people, we will preach the truth. We'll preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
Jesus taught us himself in Matthew 7, 13, 14. Verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. He's saying the way to destruction is popular. That's Broadway. That's where everybody's going. You really want to put your finger to the wind and let the culture tell you which way to go? Go ahead. Swim with the school of fish. It leads to destruction, Jesus said. But then he says, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's a very troubling verse. But that is 100% true. Because it's coming from the one who is truth. It's coming from God. Jesus said, the way of life, the way of truth is narrow. However negative our culture views the narrow truth, Jesus says, unpopular truth is the way that leads to life. Jesus said, it's the truth that you will know and the truth will make you free. What really matters? Is it being culturally affirmed? Is it, is it you know, politicians or people in our community that have a lot of clout saying, let's sponsor this church or let's recognize this church? Is that really what we're about? Because we could get a whole lot more people in here if that's the case. Are we really about numbers? We need to think seriously. Or are we about the truth? Because if we're about the truth, guess what? We're on the narrow way. And there are few. I'm just saying likely. As a rule, according to Jesus, there are few who will join us. What do we want? Do we want the truth? Or do we want the numbers? Do we want popularity? Or do we want to please God? Now, we could, we could talk about how the uh, seeker movement just totally twists Jesus and tries to redefine Jesus. I, I share with you some instances of that. You know, Jesus said he's, he's about seeking and saving that which is lost and everything like that. Here's the problem with that. That the seeker-sensitive movement redefines Jesus as a therapist who came to build man's self-esteem. Not as Jesus claimed to be and as the apostles understood and as the churches traditionally understood as our Redeemer who is sent by God to redeem us from sin and God's wrath. That's a very different Jesus, wouldn't you say? But that's the Jesus of truth. That's the Jesus of history. He's our redeemer. So uh, Richard Niebuhr, he was a theologian in the 20th century, who said of liberalism in his own day, but this is true of the seeker movement, that it told of a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's the gospel of positivity. But that's not the gospel of salvation. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the truth. So what are we about? All right. Fifthly. Fifthly. We need, if we're going to stay on a biblical course again, regardless of what our culture is doing, we need to obsess over worshiping God, not amusing sinners. So Renee said it well. Right? People want to come into our church. A lot of people are coming to the church. And if they're coming because they want to worship Jesus Christ and they're interested in God, um, hey, that's great. In fact, let me, let me just qualify that. I, I love it when anybody comes for any reason. I'll, hopefully they don't want to do us harm. No, that's not good. But it's like if people are coming and they're sincere, I'm excited. Even if they're, they don't have the right idea in their mind about Jesus Christ, anyone is welcome to come. They're welcome. We want people to feel welcome. We don't want them to think we're discriminating them or checking Christian IDs at the door. Certainly not. But at the same time, we understand God is seeking worshipers. The church is about uh, making worshipers of Jesus Christ. 
John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus told the woman at the well, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Do we believe in regulative worship? That is this principle that we can only worship God in a certain way. We can't just approach God any way we want. But God himself has regulated worship. Of course. Absolutely. It must be done in spirit and in truth. Out of a sincere heart. That's what he means. Out of a sincere spirit. But also according to the truth. Sincerity isn't everything. You have to worship God according to who he is. How he is. You can't just make idols of him. It's part of the Ten Commandments, right? So... God has regulated how we must worship him. This is very important. And uh, this is another reason I think we could say the seeker church is, uh, is unbiblical. And it's impractical. Because what they are winning people with by amusing them and building bigger music programs and, and putting on dramas and, and programs and all these things, what they win them with is what they will keep them with. What is their church full of? So you have 1,000 people. So you have 10,000 people. So you have 20,000 people or more. But what are they really there for? And what are they? Are they really the church of Jesus Christ? Are we really the church of Jesus Christ? If we cease to preach the truth, if we cease to be making worshipers of the Father, God is actually seeking worshipers. That's the seeker we ought to be most concerned about. Not those that are saying... You know, I'm looking for a church that will affirm me and build up my self-esteem and, you know, and just, you know, give a place to babysit my kids or whatever. You know, people want all these things in a church. What about what is God seeking, right? That's a great question. We ought to be worshiping the Lord. So let's obsess over worshiping God, not abusing sinners. Sixthly, if we want to keep a biblical course in our culture, we need to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. This goes back to this discussion on discipleship the fact that when jesus was ascending before he ascended to the father he gave us very clear instructions that we were to go into all all the world and make disciples that's actually the the only verb there right and everything else is a participle going our on our way we ought to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things that christ has commanded us the point of the church is to make disciples it's to replicate the faith that we've received from christ But by the way, that's not just saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Great. Yeah, we just made a disciple. No, 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 no. Yeah, I made a disciple. Making disciples is teaching someone to teach someone else to follow Jesus Christ according to his truth. And we've already talked about what that looks like as far as the truth. Equipping the saints is what the the Bible talks about in Ephesians 4. It, It is the fact that God gives the church, really gives the church a model of ministry here. He gives them pastors, teachers, all these that he's gifted in the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so in this church, if we don't have church leaders, if we don't have those equipping you to actually do something, which is what discipleship results in, right? Results in doing something, service to Christ, talking to others about Jesus, living a sanctified life for the Lord, worshiping the Lord, growing and all that. Okay, if we're not equipping you to do that, We're failing as a church. We're not really a church. You could have a bunch of doctors. Dr. John, I think we could get a bunch of doctors together. That doesn't mean we have a hospital. 
If you guys are on a golf course, that's not a hospital, okay? You could get a bunch of Christians together. That's not a church. You might have a gathering of Christians, but the church is more technically, more biblically speaking, it is a gathering of Christians that is meeting to observe what Christ commanded. Biblically baptizing people. Biblically observing the ordinance of communion. Uh, actually preaching on sin and excommunicating people that is disfellowshipping people who will not repent. Because we're saying basically you're not a true believer. You have no part in Christ. Repent. Come back to him. All right, so the church's goal is, uh, the church's commandment, our responsibility from the Lord, from the word of God, is to equip the saints. And I could give you a score of uh, things that have been said here that are just tragic about how the the secret movement just totally disagrees. That's not where their heart is. That's not their philosophy of ministry. Lastly, I would say, to keep a biblical course in our culture, we need to affirm the sufficiency of God's word, which means we need to reaffirm the centrality of preaching. That's why we do what we do in our ministry. That's why we do this, Sunday school. We talk about the word. Wednesday nights, community group, we're going to be discussing the word. We're all about the word of God here. And, and in all that, too, we... We believe expositional preaching is the best way to give our people a well-rounded diet of the word. Why is that? Because like Paul, we can say then in Acts 20, 27, we cease not to declare the whole counsel of God. In this church, we don't want to be guilty of preaching only parts of the Bible that are easy to hear and even easy to understand. We want to give everybody everything. Isn't that fair? Isn't that what God intended when he gave us all the Bible? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, Paul explains that though the wisdom of the world does not know God, he says God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that believe. Why do we do what we do in our church? Because it's the, can I say foolishness? That's the term Paul used. Because the culture says it's foolish. But it's the same foolishness the Corinthian culture thought was foolish. It's the same foolishness today that our culture thinks is foolish. Well, you come and you hear the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're about. Preach the word, Paul told Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season. He said there's coming a time when people will turn their ears away. They want their ears to be tickled. They want to be entertained. They want an easy, entertaining kind of ministry. I come, I just sit and spectate. That is not what the word of God is about. So we want to be sensitive uh, to people, we certainly do. We want to uh, direct them to know Christ. And even if people reject Christ, right? They're just coming because, hey, I just like the fellowship here. I just like the, the meals afterwards. You know what? You're still welcome to come. That's fine. We're not twisting anybody's arm to trust Jesus. But can I say, as far as what the church is about biblically, it's about Christ. And it's about Christ's people worshiping Christ and keeping him preeminent. And it's about Christ's people leading all of Christ's people in the flock, one another, to all do the same. It's not about the lost. We want the lost to come in, like 1 Corinthians 14 says, and when they see us worshiping God together in one accord, what, what did Paul say? He said, they will fall down and they will say, of oh, a truth, God is in you. That is true biblical conversion. That's how the Holy Spirit works. So may the Lord help us to understand and maintain a biblical philosophy of ministry. Let's pray.